This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the potential, if not real, public health threat via the intensive use of chemical herbicides on genetically modified crops. With me to discuss the topic is Dr. Charles Benbrook, co-author of a recent essay in the New England Journal of Medicine titled GMOs, Herbicides, and Public Health. Dr. Benbrook's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you. On background... Genetically modified food crops, for example, alfalfa, apples, corn, potatoes, rice, soybeans, tomatoes, and others, have had their DNA modified to make them more resistant to certain diseases, pests, and other environmental conditions such as drought, frost, and high soil salinity, while at the same time improving in certain instances their shelf life, nutritional value, and yield. GM technology has been widely applied over the past 20 years such that In the U.S., over 90% of corn and soybean fields are planted using GMOs. There is general scientific agreement that these crops pose no greater risk to human health than non-genetically modified food plants. However, the most prevalent genetically modified trait, herbicide resistance, specifically the herbicide glyphosate, has led to the widespread use such that its use, Dr. Brenbrook cites in his New England Journal essay, has increased use in the U.S. by a factor of more than 250. As a result, these resistant weeds have emerged, or glyphosate resistant weeds have emerged, such that now the herbicide is being used in combination with another herbicide, 2,4-D, a component of defoliant Agent Orange, under the name Enlist Duo. To what extent intensive use of glyphosate in combination with 2,4-D pose a public health concern is, again, the topic of this conversation or podcast with Dr. Benbrook. So with that on background, uh, Chuck, in your essay, you argue uh, two issues, so let's take them one by one. Uh, the first is that the science and risk assessment supporting the use of Enlist Duo is flawed. Can you explain why you believe that is? Sure, but but first, uh, let me just uh, uh, expand a bit on a couple points you made in the in the Please. opener, to, so that that we uh, your listeners have a sound grounding in where we're at in this uh, agricultural biotechnology revolution. Uh, first, while it's true that a, a wide array of uh, food crops and trees and vines and even grass for lawns has been uh, genetically engineered in the lab uh, in the search for possibly constructive technologies. There's there's a limited number of foods on the market and, and that have been in the food supply that, that actually are genetically engineered, and by far the two most important are corn and soybeans, as you've noted. Uh, in more recent years, uh, alfalfa, which is a, a important forage crop for uh, Livestock um, and sugar beets have uh, had uh, genetically engineered uh, varieties and traits approved to enter in the market. But there's no rice. There is one uh, apple technology that was uh, recently.
approved, but uh, I don't believe there's any commercial plantings yet in the U.S. The the only food that uh, human beings eat um, that in a relatively fresh form where the genetically engineered proteins are, are not uh, broken down is sweet corn. Two years ago, Monsanto brought onto the market a, a new sweet corn variety that expresses three uh, genetically engineered traits, one conferring resistance to glyphosate herbicide, the so-called Roundup Ready trait, and two, making the sweet corn um, impervious to the attacks of certain insects. These, are, these were BT traits. So, so the uh, sweet corn expresses two different um, variations, if you will, of the uh, endotoxins expressed by BT, which is a natural soil bacterium where they move the genes from the bacteria into the corn. So that, that's the first point I want to make. The second point I want to make is it is just not true that there is a broad-based consensus that all genetically engineered crops are pose no uh, safety risks, so whether they're larger risks or, or lesser risks than other crops. This, this, is a, um, uh, this is an area where recent science and the application of really modern risk assessment tools is beginning to raise new new questions and it it is premature and and simply not correct to say that uh, the science is settled and that there's a broad consensus so, although there's certainly many people in the US government and the biotech industry that that make that point all the time and and indeed wish that uh, the general public would would buy into it now to your question about um you know, what's gone on with these Roundup Ready corn and soybean uh, traits and the, the fact that there's been so much glyphosate used that it's triggered both shifts in wheat communities and, and that uh, it, weeds that are less sensitive to glyphosate have become more uh, predominant in fields. And in some fields, there are actually weeds that have developed genetic resistance, just like some bacteria have develop resistance to antibiotics and um, pose problems for, for uh, people when they get an ear infection or, uh, or uh, uh, have surgery and they get a, a bacterial infection and if doctors aren't on top of it and, and switch antibiotics in time, they, they can be in, in real trouble. So what, what's happened is the efficacy of this Roundup Ready technology where corn, soybeans, cotton, alfalfa farmers in, you know, seven, eight years ago could achieve excellent weed control at an affordable price with just one or two applications of glyphosate. It really was remarkably effective. Uh, it's a relatively low-risk herbicide, but it's it sort of, um, it, it, it was too good to be true and farmers used too much of it and, and overuse kind of killed the goose that laid the golden egg. And so now we've got this uh, huge problem across the United States where there's oh, 17, 18 glyphosate-resistant weeds that are basically spreading. The, most of them started in the southeast and have been spreading north and west. Um, there's actually glyphosate-resistant weeds all over the country now, even in areas where uh, genetically engineered crops haven't been sprayed. So the solution to this problem of slipping efficacy to glyphosate and Roundup Ready genetic engineering technology, the, the response by the, the seed biotech 
pesticide industry, which is really all one wrapped together, has been to develop new vari uh, genetically engineered varieties of corn and soybeans and cotton and alfalfa that are resistant to other herbicides in addition to glyphosate. And in fact, this the new 2,4-D resistant corn is resistant to glyphosate and glufosinate, which is another similar broad-spectrum herbicide. They're resistant to a large family of, of herbicides that are generally called the FOPs, F-O-P-S, and they're also resistant to 2,4-D. So they're, they're actually have been genetically engineered to be resistant to over 10 herbicides. And some farmers will apply three or four different herbicides on this crop. So this is um, this marks a really radical ramping up of uh, use, trying to use herbicides to keep up with these uh, weeds. And I've characterized it as making about as much sense as pouring gasoline on a fire to put it out. Okay, well, thank you for uh, your comment on my intro statement about no greater risk than non-genetically modified. That's certainly what I read uh, in the more popular literature, so thank you for uh, making that point. Let me uh, stay with this issue about the science and risks assessment supporting uh, or not supporting the use of now these combinations of herbicides. You're saying that that evaluation has been flawed. Right. So the, the way the federal regulatory system works is in for pesticides. You know, uh, when a company discovers a new uh, pesticide active ingredient, so this is the, the chemical that that actually kills the the uh, the insect or controls a plant disease or or kills a weed, um, it develops a, a a package of material and a proposed. Um, a way that farmers would apply the pesticide and submits that to to the US EPA for uh, a regulatory review and a risk assessment and and EPA is responsible for abiding by the the standards and provisions in the Federal Insecticide Fungicide and Rodenticide Act and oh heck it must have been 45 years ago the uh, EPA and and at that time, actually, USDA was was uh, doing um, the registration of pesticides. Recall that EPA wasn't formed until 1970 mm -hmm. during the Nixon, Nixon. presidency. So uh, once the EPA approves a, a, a pesticide, as they did 2,4-D, I, I think, in the 60s, and glyphosate in the mid-70s, um, it, it's on the market and it can be used um, under the conditions set forth on the label. Now, glyphosate got registered on a wide array of crops, um, all of the major field crops, most of the fruits and vegetables. And under that label, it would be entirely legal for farmers to buy it and apply it and, and Monsanto and the other companies to sell it to treat every acre in the country of corn or one acre. There, there's once a, a uh, a pesticide is approved for use, EPA kind of says, well, it's safe on one acre, and we don't have any reason to question it being used on 10 acres or 100,000 acres or 10 million acres or 150 million acres. Well, that's where we're at now with glyphosate. It's being sprayed on over 150 million acres, which is uh, about half of our cropland, and it's... Um, 
when a pesticide goes from being used on a few million acres to 150 or 200 million acres, it's not surprising that the the scope and nature of risks would change. And 2,4-D, which has been a, a a controversial chemical for many years, and it, it, the controversy really started out because it was 50% of the mixture called Agent Orange, which was used as, as a defoliant during the Vietnam War, the other 50% being another phenoxy herbicide called 245T. Um, so, so 2,4-D's been on the market for 50-plus years. There is a voluminous literature on the health effects of 2,4-D, which include uh, a number of different birth defects and a, a number of different types of cancer. Uh, there is not a lot of debate in, in international regulatory circles about the potential of 2,4-D to uh, be a risk factor for a variety of birth defects and reproductive problems and, and, and cancer. It's, it's been so judged. The, recently, the International Agency for Research on Cancer reaffirmed a classification of 2,4-D as a possible human carcinogen. So And glyphosate we, as a probable human carcinogen. And, 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 and glyphosate as a probable human carcinogen, and, we, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that, but 2,4-D has other problems and the biggest one it's very it's a volatile herbicide so farmers might make a careful legal application on a cornfield but you know uh, with with these genetically engineered seeds they'll be spraying 2,4-D on corn at the end of June in in the middle of July when it can be hot and steamy and humid uh, throughout the, 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 the Midwest and, and in corn-growing areas of the country. And under those weather conditions, 2,4-D volatilizes. It turns into a gas and goes up into the air, and then it moves with the wind. And then at, when there's a, a some sort of moisture event, whether it's fog or rain, it comes back down onto the earth. And if it happens to come back down onto a sensitive crop, uh, it can really wreak havoc. So 2,4-D is notorious for its ability to move off-site, and by that I mean off the field where it was sprayed to control weeds. It moves off-site, and it can, it's, it's incredibly biologically active for any fruiting, fruit or vegetable. So cherries, tomatoes, pumpkins, melons, cucumbers, um, other fruit crops, grapes, uh, many of these crops uh, can be essentially devastated for the, a year's production by levels of 2,4-D that cannot be measured with any known analytical chemistry tool. It's that potent. Uh, at, the, at the stage where plants are doing their very complex, going through the very complex reproductive process and, and starting to set seed, what the 2,4-D does is it disrupts that developmental process and you either don't get a grape or you don't get an apple or you get a misshapen one or one that, that rots or has, a, you know, is off flavor. So the big concern, and the, 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 there's, th there's really three big concerns about the use of 2,4-D increasing 30, 40, 50-fold in the American Midwest over the next uh, five or six years as this technology gets adopted. 
you know, there's the concern about uh, an increase in reproductive and uh, problems and birth defects among live births for people living in and around areas where uh, a lot of this 2,4-D corn is planted. There's a longer-term concern about an increase in lymphatic cancers and other cancers that have been associated with 2,4-D exposures. Uh, but on a, on a you know, day-to-day basis in areas where fields are being sprayed, there's also the concern about uh, drift, volatilization and drift and damage to other people's crops, which it's like a stealth killer. You, you can't find, you can't detect it. You, you know, somebody says, well, gosh, something happened to my, my tomato crop. I, it looks like it got some horrible virus. Uh, but it, it may well have been, and, and in many cases has been, drift of 2,4-D, but it's very difficult to prove it because such low levels cause the problem. And by the time a, a state, uh, official is out there to investigate the drift episode, they, you can't measure it. So how do you prove it was the 2,4-D? So this is the, a, a huge problem. And, and Dow AgroSciences, which is the uh, technology developer and the, the chemical company that holds the registration for Enlist Duo, which is a combination of 2,4-D and glyphosate, they have developed a new formulation, uh, which is uh, of 2,4-D, which is less prone to, to volatilization. Uh, but it's no one really no one knows how it's going to behave across the the huge variety of circumstances that are, are going to arise as it starts to be used and uh, and th- this is and also no, no one really uh, understands how human exposure levels are going to change when we go from you know five percent or ten percent of the corn acres in a county being treated early in the season with 2,4-D before the corn crop really gets going. And, and that's it, not, not being sprayed again past, uh, say, the, between the second week of April and the first week of May, one application. Well, two, two or three years from now, you're, you'll have counties where 30 or 40% of the corn, and that could be 15% of the surface area in a county, is going to be sprayed, and not just once. Uh, the label allows up to three applications at a full pound per acre per application, which is a huge increase in the use. And not just an increase in the use, but the farmers will be able to spread their use out, which means people are going to be exposed uh, potentially for uh, over a two-month period. And this really scares uh, epidemiologists and scientists that that have worked for years to try to drive down the uh, impact of 2,4-D use on on birth defects and and reproductive problems in in farm country. So with with the increasing intensive use of glyphosate and its combination with 2,4-D, there are these concerns you just detailed. Let's go to there is a convened National Academy of Science Committee that is looking into this. What are they doing and what might we expect from them? Well, this committee started its work in September of 2014. I was actually invited, one of 10 scientists invited, to make a presentation to the committee at its sort of maiden, maiden meeting in, in D.C. at the National Academy of Sciences building. It was, uh, it was quite an affair, and actually for people that want a deep dive in this, uh, 
uh, they filmed the whole day. So all 10 presentations and all of the uh, often lively questions from the audience are available on the NES website. Um, uh, the uh, Academy report is uh, scheduled for release in the spring of 2016, so another six months or so. And you know, it's hard to say, you know, what they're going to uh, cover. But this is the first National Academy of Science committee since 2004 that's been uh, charged with looking at the public health consequences of genetically engineered food. And I mean, a lot has changed with this technology since 2004, especially when you realize that a National Academy of Science report that comes out in 2004, the most recent study that it would take into account was 2002. But it takes a long time for an Academy report to, to work through their very rigorous uh, process. So. The, the world of agricultural biotechnology and, and what we understood about uh, possible risks stemming from it, in, including the risks from greater intensity of use of herbicides, were, I mean, they, they were uh, hypothesized. People were worrying about them in 2002. People were warning about them. But they weren't um, happening in an unambiguous and significant way. Fast forward uh, 12 years and the beginning of this new National Academy of Science study. And, you know, there's no denying that we have a, a glyphosate weed-resistant crisis in, in, uh, in American agriculture. It's had a huge environmental and economic impact on agriculture in the southeastern U.S. already because there, there are more glyphosate-resistant weeds in the southeast and they're spread more widely. There, there are uh, cotton farmers that can't grow cotton anymore because they can't control weeds with any of the herbicides that are available, at, at least not in an affordable way. There's thousands of farmers in the southeast over the last five years or so who have actually hired crews to go out into fields with hoes to try to chop and remove these glyphosate-resistant weeds before they set seed. One of the most notorious is called Palmer amaranth. This is an aggressive plant. It can grow four or five inches a day. It can set 400,000, even more seeds per plant. Uh, and when it takes off in a field, uh, it just becomes almost impossible to control. So the, the National Academy of Science Committee, it, it's not, there's no longer a debate about whether this technology is going to trigger the spread of glyphosate-resistant weeds. That's already happened. It's already reached a, a very serious level in the southeast, and it's getting worse every year in the Corn Belt. So their charge is, well, what do we do about this? And, and I think the most, probably the single most important uh, challenge that, that, and decision they have to make is, uh, are they going to embrace this doubling down on herbicide-tolerant technology and, and this notion that farmers can spray their way out of a problem that was created by relying too much on herbicides in the first place, and in particular one herbicide. So I, I don't know. The, um, uh, the, uh, the Academy has not been uh, terribly willing to, to take on the sort of the industrial scientific establishment uh, on, a, on a lot of agricultural issues in, in recent years. So I guess I'm not expecting a, a, a very revolutionary report out of them, but I'm sure they're going to 
raise many more questions about potential public health risks if we keep going down this road than the last Academy report, which came out in 2004. So you make three recommendations in the New England Journal essay. Not asking you here to repeat those, but what's in your mind our way out of this? Clearly, this was a foreseeable unintended consequence. The ever increasing use over reliance on these herbicides caused uh, the ever increasing uh, evolution of resistant uh, weed growth. Um, nevertheless, we are where we are. Um, what's uh, possibly from your perspective, the light at the end of the tunnel? Well, um, the EPA in its in its uh, approval of Enlist Duo limited the use to five, five or seven states in uh, 2015, and I think the list expands somewhat in, in 2016. One obvious step, if what I think ought to happen is Dow AgroSciences should voluntarily say, okay, we're, we're going to hold off. We're not going to move forward with this technology right now until some of these issues get resolved in a more uh, rigorous and, and uh, science-based way. But I, I doubt that's going to happen because, you know, they've, they've produced the seed. It's, it's a valuable commodity. It has to be used. So one obvious step is that the birth control centers and obstetricians and pediatricians in the areas where uh, substantial uh, amounts of the of the new genetically engineered 2,4-D seed is planted, they should be alerted and supported to do uh, post-market approval surveillance to see if there is an uptick in spontaneous abortions, which are clearly linked to exposure to 2,4-D. Uh, 2,4-D came out of the Vietnam War, as you recall, as a very controversial chemical. The, the U.S. government in the, in the mid-70s to the mid-80s funded a tremendous amount of research on 2,4-D health risks in order to deal with the um, concerns from veterans about the health effects that many of them Returning were Returning correct, yes. Yes. You know, post-Vietnam. And, and so uh, EPA funded, I think, six or eight birth centers a around the farm country to do research on reproductive problems for, uh, you know, children sired by Vietnam veterans coming that, have, that came back to the U.S. And lo and behold, they, they all found essentially the same thing. There was a, a spike in reproductive problems and, and birth defects. Uh, for women that were uh, in their first trimester of pregnancy during the prime herbicide spraying season. This pattern was consistent across all of them. And the other finding that they had that really kind of sealed the deal is they, they always picked a cohort of women who matched all other parameters, demographics, health status, et cetera, but lived in a city or a suburban area where they weren't near farms. They didn't see any difference in the in the uh, control group uh, pattern of birth defects in the 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 women that that lived in urban areas. Again, consistently across the studies. So, um, at, 
it, it was just generally uh, agreed upon in the scientific community that exposures to 2,4-D in the first trimester of pregnancy are uh, a risk factor for uh, a, a number of, of reproductive problems resulting in a, a non-viable conception, but also among live births, uh, 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 four or five different uh, birth defects. So these these birth defects are well known. They're going to be diagnosed. And if if the pediatricians and obstetricians in these areas are alerted to the possibility of an uptick in these problems, it's much more likely they're going to notice patterns. And that's why Dr. Landergan and I wanted to get our piece in the New England Journal of Medicine, because we were quite confident that many physicians would pay attention to it. And we're we're actually very pleased that that I think that happened. There's there's a higher level of awareness that this this might be a a, a, a new problem that we're facing, and and I hope I hope it's not true. I hope that the new choline formulation has reduced volatilization. I hope farmers will be careful. Uh, you know, I I don't obviously nobody wants to see this happen, but. Given how much we know about the risks of 2,4-D, and given that we know there's going to be a, a, a dramatic increase in use in a number of corn, soybean growing counties in the Midwest, it, it strikes it strikes Dr. Landergan and I as only prudent to uh, really be on the lookout and have some government support for um, medical boots on the ground, if, if you will, to, to assure that if there is an uptick in public health problems from this technology, it gets discovered after the first year or the second year of use. And, and we don't wait 15 years uh, until we have, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of, of you know, families and women that, that have, uh, you know, suffered through, a, you know, a, 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 a compromised pregnancy or, or having to raise a kid with, with birth defects. Mm-hmm. Well, Chuck, sadly, we're at our uh, time boundary, so I want to thank you for this. I will just make one last note. You do also recommend that the U.S. take up labeling or requiring manufacturers to label uh, genetically modified foods. So with that, Chuck, I thank you again for your time. Okay, thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.